From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, July 24th. I'm Aaron Schachter. presidential candidates remain silent on the issue of gun violence. We check in on attitudes overseas. In a Japanese action movie, if a handgun comes out, that's considered this kind of very serious, grave thing, whereas in an American action movie, you know, unless there are 40 guns going off at once, it's kind of a boring scene. And gymnast Olga Corbett remembers a backflip that helped win her gold at the 1972 Olympics. I can't believe I did it like that. This girl is good. Rise the World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. And by WGBH, producer of Market Warriors. Don't miss Market Warriors Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. It's been four days since the movie theater shooting in Aurora, Colorado, and here are a couple of things that have and have not happened. Firearm sales in Colorado have spiked, with reports of lines of people outside gun stores. One store employee told the Denver Post that non-gun owners are feeling the need to defend themselves. What hasn't happened since the shootings is much of a call to restrict firearms or tighten the regulations for how they're sold. There were such calls after other mass killings in recent years, but less so this time. We're going to check in with a couple of countries that have tighter regulations, Israel and Japan. First, Israel. It's a country where you'll see plenty of guns, on the streets, in supermarkets, at the entrances to malls, and where people are hyper-aware of security issues. But it turns out they are also quite comfortable with strict gun laws. The world's Matthew Bell reports from Jerusalem. I saw plenty of guns growing up in small-town New Hampshire, but it was still a bit startling to arrive here in the Holy Land and see so many guns in public. Take today, for example. Where I dropped my kids off at school this morning, there was an armed security guard. At the cell phone shop, a guy next to me in line had a holster with a 9mm in it. And as usual, I saw several off-duty Israeli soldiers around town with assault weapons slung over their shoulders. It seems like firearms are just part of everyday life here. To get the lowdown on gun laws in Israel, I paid a visit to a gun range in Jerusalem. Ronin Rabani runs the place, which also sells firearms and ammunition. Rabani sports a cleanly shaved head and gives off a law-and-order vibe. He says civilians who want permission to have a gun have to meet certain criteria. First of all, we have the basic things you have to have before you can apply for a weapon. You have to be a three-year citizen. You have to be over 21 if you have been to the army, or over 27 if you were not. And you have to have a reason. You cannot have a gun unless you have a good reason. That means that your reason was uh, recommended by the police. Typical reasons are working in a cash business, or for Jewish Israelis living in a West Bank settlement. Arab citizens of Israel can apply for a gun license, but Palestinians who live under Israeli military jurisdiction in the occupied territories cannot own guns legally. 
Rabani says qualified Israeli applicants have to do a face-to-face interview with security officials. They need to present a clean bill of health, physical and mental, and they need to pass some tests every so often to keep their license valid. You have to come to the range and have a safety lesson and a shooting lesson. You have to hit a minimum 80% to the target from 10 yards, you know. And you have to shoot uh, with the gun you're going to buy. And you have to be safe with the pistol. If the instructor thinks you don't handle the gun well, he can deny you from uh, having a license or he can ask you to have another lesson. How many people have you denied? We've done it before with people who can behave. If he doesn't behave well in the range, we don't recommend the pistol. If he's a nervous guy, if we smell beer or alcohol from him, we don't recommend and he will never have a gun. Israeli civilians own far fewer guns on average than Americans do, and Israeli regulations are infinitely more strict. The suspect in the Colorado theater shooting, for instance, bought 6,000 rounds of ammunition online. Those purchases were completely above board in the U.S. In Israel, all legal ammunition is sold in government-regulated gun shops, and every round is accounted for. Gun owners are not supposed to have more than 50 rounds in their possession at one time. Shooting instructor and gun dealer Ronan Rabani says there's no Israeli equivalent to the Second Amendment, and that has a downside, he says. Maybe it's very strict in Israel because many of my friends cannot have a gun because they live in regular places, not danger places, but still in weekends they go for big trips in the desert next to the Sinai Desert, and they cannot have a gun. So this is the other end of it. Another Israeli gun owner who gives his name as Gilad is leaving the practice range. He's a security guard by profession, but says he leaves his weapon at work and has no interest in getting a license to keep a handgun at home. I think it will be better if I only use it at my job. I don't want it to be at home, you know, not with my uh, family around. I don't want any mistakes, only job. Gilad says he feels secure in the city where he lives. Giving everyone permission to have a gun, he says, would be irresponsible. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. Now, you may think that Israel has pretty strict gun laws, but they're nothing compared to Japan. Authorities have made it extremely difficult for the average citizen to own a weapon. As a result, gun violence in Japan is almost unheard of. Max Fisher is an associate editor at The Atlantic. He says Japanese attitudes toward gun ownership are the polar opposite of those found in America. It is really hard to get your hands on a gun in Japan. Handguns are absolutely banned except for on-duty police. They can't even carry them when they're off-duty. You can't buy rifles unless you owned one before 1971 when they passed the first law banning all rifles. You can have a shotgun or an air rifle, but it is a very difficult, onerous process to get one, which is why Japan has one of the lowest gun ownership rates in the world. There are six guns privately held for every 1,000 people. In the United States, there are 890 guns for every 1,000 people. Gun violence is also extremely low. In 2008, in the U.S., there were 12,000 firearm-related homicides. In all of Japan, there were 11. That's fewer people than were killed just in the Aurora shooting. There were 587 Americans killed by accidental gun discharges. There were none killed in Japan. What is the difference in regulations between the United States and Japan? In Japan, the law actually starts with uh, this 
1958 law that reads, no person shall possess a firearm or firearms or a sword or swords. So they start from the assumption that you can't have guns. And then from there, you kind of work in these these exceptions that, you know, well, in some situations, you can have a shotgun for hunting, but, you know, you have to go through this very difficult process to get a hold of it. As you mentioned, though, there are some number of guns in Japan. Uh, what, what do you have to go through to get one? So it starts with an all-day class and a written test, and they're held only once a month, and they're held on a weekday. Once you pass the written test, you have to take and pass a shooting range class. Then you have to head over to the hospital for a mental test and a drug test. Um, Japan is really unusual in that you have to affirmatively prove your mental health in order to get a gun. Uh, Then you follow that with the police. The police will go on to pass a pretty rigorous background check, and that's just to get your hand on the shotgun or air rifle. Once you've got it, you have to give the police a um, specific details on where in your home you're keeping the shotgun and the ammunition. Then after all that, you've got to bring the gun in for an annual inspection by the police, and then every three years you have to do the entire thing all over again. So you can see why a lot of people in Japan might think, you know what, it's not worth the trouble. So do you foresee any changes in uh, the laws in Japan? I don't think so. Japanese gun laws have been slowly tightening since 1958. And, you know, they've even had to actually pass some laws to make people carry guns more. Uh, The American Occupation Authority after World War II Uh, General MacArthur was famously dismayed because none of the police carried guns, and he had to specifically order them to carry handguns so they just wouldn't do it. The thing is, though, that we are comparing things in, you know, the 2000s, but as you mentioned, the history of this stuff is very, very different. Part of it goes back to the 19th century when there was this very explicit government effort to disarm the samurai class, which was, you know, kind of this famous elite that were using weapons to kind of entrench their authority. And the Meiji Restoration was trying to take that back. And the big way they did that is they said, you have to turn over your swords, which ended up being very violent. Um, A lot of them would not give them up without a fight. And you can kind of see this legacy in the laws, that even 20th century laws will write alongside firearms, they will also have swords. I mean, the firearm law says no firearms or no swords. You know, there was a nice anecdote in your article about, you know, the famous Yakuza gangsters using things other than guns sort right. of America in the, before the 20s. It's amazing. The Yakuza will, you know, and, and I don't want to downplay the Yakuza because, you know, they kill a lot of people. They're very violent. They will occasionally use not just guns but assault rifles. But culturally, they are very sensitive about using guns. And you can even see it in the pop culture that the idea of, in a Japanese action movie, if a handgun comes out, that's considered this kind of very serious, grave thing. Whereas in an American action movie, you know, unless there are 40 guns going off at once, it's kind of a boring scene. So you, you can really see that the way that they look at guns is just so different than how we do. And they're much more sensitive to kind of the danger that they pose. Max Fisher is an associate editor at The Atlantic. We will have a link to his article, A Land Without Guns, How Japan Has Virtually Eliminated Shooting Deaths. Max, thank you. Thank you. The Japanese are more sensitive to guns, and they regulate accordingly. It might be argued that Americans, some of them anyway, are more sensitive to the dangers of alcohol. And that's reflected in how the sale of alcohol is regulated. In fact, among Western nations, the U.S. is notoriously tough in controlling booze sales and advertising. But Russia, yes, Russia, is catching up. The government has banned all alcohol advertising. That means no ads on TV, radio, billboards, or the Internet. 
It's part of a campaign to combat the country's drinking problem. Russia's drinking rate is double the maximum considered acceptable by the World Health Organization. We're joined now by Moscow-based journalist Masha Gessen. Masha, how bad is the drinking problem in Russia? It must be pretty serious to warrant a ban like this. I don't see what uh, a ban on alcohol can possibly do to stem alcoholism. Uh, I hardly imagine that somebody um, watches a commercial and decides uh, to take a drink, you know, that they otherwise wouldn't take. This is one of many odd laws passed by the Russian parliament recently that have not been publicly discussed, that, um, that have no public support behind them, uh, and the point of which is really um, not clear, but the consequences of which will be dire for the media here because of the loss of advertising re- revenue. Is there any contention that the, the point is to stifle the media? I think this is one of many ways of uh, stifling the media. It's probably not the most direct uh, and not the most effective one, but it will certainly lim- limit the field, the media field uh, in this country even further. Uh, Masha, in Gorbachev's time, he saw uh, a problem with alcoholism, and he attempted to ban alcohol, not even advertising, but alcohol itself. Uh, how effective was that? Gorbachev actually did try uh, not exactly to ban alcohol, but pretty, it came pretty close uh, to severely limit, uh, ration alcohol. Um, what that uh, that ended up leading to was a lot of illegal production, a lot of consumption of um, uh, of illegally produced alcohol and alcohol substitutes. Um, ultimately, a huge rise uh, in alcohol um, as a disease, and and an even larger rise in um, po- deaths from poisoning. Um, and um, Russia has never actually gone back uh, to pre-Gorbachev alcoholism levels, even since Gorbachev's uh, so-called anti-alcoholism pa- policies were reversed. It, it sounds like you don't think this ban on advertising will have uh, much effect on the rate of alcoholism if, in fact, that's really what it's intended to do? I have no faith in it at all. Um, I think it has, uh, for it to have any chance of being effective in that, uh, in that respect, to have to be part of a conservative campaign, and, and one simply isn't happening. Masha Gessen is a Moscow-based journalist. She spoke with us about Russia's alcohol ad ban. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. Forty years ago, a tiny pigtailed gymnast from the Soviet Union was the darling of the Munich Olympics. Olga Korbut captured three gold medals and one silver at the 1972 Games. She also inspired little girls all over the world to take up the sport. Now Korbut lives in Scottsdale, Arizona, and reporter Bridget McCarthy spoke with her about her Olympic conquests. Olga Corbett is 17 years old, a little teenage girl who has suddenly come from a place called Grodno, Russia, to perform before 11,000 people in the Olympic Games. Soviet gymnast Olga Corbett seemed to come out of nowhere. She was 4 foot 11 and as slender as a sparrow. During her first routine on the balance beam, she executed a move never before seen in Olympic competition, a backward aerial somersault. I think this is the part we're waiting for. 
Backflip. And a front off. Look at the gal go. I can't believe I did it like that. This girl is good. <laughs> then, Corbett did something even more astonishing on the uneven bars, a move that was subsequently banned because it was so dangerous. This is an element I always scared to do. Always. Now watch this. Watch this. Standing on the top bar, she dived backwards and somehow managed to arch around and catch the bar with her hands. Back so Be right to the other bar. Has that been done before by never, a girl? Never. Not by any human that I know of. You know, those kind of comments just excited and ignited the public in no way we'd ever seen before. Oh, my God. Wow. Paul Zert is the publisher of International Gymnast magazine and a former Olympic coach. He says Olga Corbett didn't just dazzle everyone with her acrobatics. I think the most interesting thing for most of us was how different she was from the stereotypical Soviet gymnast. She was a whole different breed. What an exciting little gal. She was wild and unpredictable and utterly charismatic. She watch how she beams and plays to the crowd. something. The crowd loved her even when she stumbled. And of course, that wonderful scene when she burst into tears, we didn't think that, you know, we, uh, during the Cold War like that, we didn't think the Soviets had any ability to show any emotion publicly like that. Soviet gymnasts might have been poker-faced, but they always took home the gold. In that time, uh, Soviet team was the first, the best. In fact, Soviet gymnasts dominated the Olympic competition for decades. It's just that no one else paid very much attention until Olga Corbett came along. Olga Corbett began training at one of the Soviet Union's elite gymnastics schools when she was nine. The youngest of four girls, she says her mother didn't even know she took gymnastics until she saw Olga perform on TV. Uh, because uh, my mother and father, they worked very hard. You know, four kids, we were poor. And we've been by ourselves. After the Munich Olympics, President Nixon invited Corbett to the White House. You are a little girl, he quipped. To which she replied, you are a big boy. Corbett made the Soviet Olympic team again in 1976, but she retired from competition after a disappointing showing in Montreal. She then became the head coach for the Soviet Belarusian team. She was living in Minsk with her husband and young son during the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in 1986. Much of the radioactive fallout landed in nearby Belarus. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, Corbett and her family came to the United States. Actually, I didn't want to leave country, but I raised money to help victims of Chernobyl, and I was in the United States a lot. She ended up staying and teaching gymnastics. She became an American citizen in 2000. Olga Corbett was named one of Sports Illustrated's 40 Greatest Athletes in 1994 and was the first person inducted into the International Gymnastics Hall of Fame. Now 57, she still teaches and is still incredibly fit. I work out every day because my body needs that. And she's still passionate about gymnastics. But she says the sport has changed a lot over the past 40 years. Now it's much more about power than artistry. Uh, you know what? I waiting maybe another Olga will will be born and change gymnastics to be more graceful and beautiful 
but now it is like a robot, not smiling, not enjoying, I think. And sometimes it's boring to watch. But she'll be in the Olympics' North Greenwich Arena, watching the gymnastics and providing live commentary on Twitter and Facebook. For The World, I'm Bridget McCarthy. Want to see Olga Corbett do that now illegal backflip off the uneven bars? You can watch videos of her near-perfect 10 performance and others. They're at theworld.org. Now a bit of Olympic news to pass along. You may have heard our interview with marathon runner Gore Marial. He's the South Sudanese athlete who qualified for the Olympics but didn't have a country to represent. South Sudan doesn't have a national Olympic committee. And Marial refused an offer to run for Sudan, the bitter enemy of South Sudanese during a decades-long civil war. Here he is explaining why he wouldn't compete for Sudan. South Sudan is an independent country. It has own flag, it has own uh, citizen, it has own president. And it's just uh, not right to being an athlete from South Sudan and be able to go and compete for the Sudan, which is a country we already split from. I came to United States as a refugee. And for me to go back and represent the Sudan, which is a country I refuge from, just seemed to me not right. Well, Marial petitioned the International Olympic Committee to allow him to run as an independent participant, and the IOC said yes. So, Gore Marial is headed to London next week. But if you're watching the marathon, don't look for him wearing South Sudan's multicolored flag on his uniform. Historically, Olympic independent participants have worn white uniforms. And if Marial wins a medal, they'll raise the Olympic flag for him. And before we take a break, remember the story of Goldilocks and the Three Bears? You know, one bowl of porridge too hot, one too cold, and one just right. Well, that's a little like the British weather. After endless reports of London's cold, rain-drenched summer, now it seems to have warmed up, perhaps too warm. Today, temperatures in London shot up to about 85 degrees Fahrenheit, and that's created a problem for Britain's train system. Some trains didn't stop at the station nearest to the Olympic Park after midday today. The problem? The heat was affecting overhead power lines. The power lines date back to the 1950s and 60s. The Transit Authority said the lines can expand and sag in the high temperatures, and so it was reducing train speeds to avoid damaging equipment. And that meant suspending some train services until the temperature drops. Oh well. Maybe by Friday when the games begin, the temperature will be just right. Schachter, a head chicken is scarce in Iran, prompting quips that it won't be the opposition that brings down the regime. One day what could turn out to overthrow this regime could be the chicken. And Quincy Jones on the first time he heard Cuban pianist Alfredo Rodriguez play. We heard him that day. Herbie Hancock says, I'm not going anywhere near that. 
PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. I'm Aaron Schachter. The economic picture in Europe may be going from bad to worse, and the issues just won't go away. In Spain, the government's borrowing costs are now so high that many believe a bailout is inevitable. The fear is that if Spain's economy collapses, the problems might spread to Italy and even France. Even powerhouse Germany is hurting because of problems elsewhere in Europe. The world's Clark Boyd is just back from a two-year stint in Brussels, where he followed the Eurozone problems closely. Clark, Spain's borrowing costs are up. Why is that giving the markets and European policymakers such fits? Mostly, Aaron, because Spain isn't really considered the periphery of Europe in the same way that, say, Greece or Portugal or Ireland is. So when you're talking about problems with the Spanish economy, you're talking about the Eurozone's fourth largest economy. Uh, And there are obviously concerns that if that economy goes south, the bailout required for that uh, is going to be immense, even bigger than we've seen for these smaller countries. And the fear is if Spain goes, then the contagion spreads to countries like Italy, even France, and the problem just gets worse and worse. So Germany, the big powerhouse in Europe, came to the rescue of Greece. Uh, will it do it again? Well, this is obviously a, a, a big sticking point. It's For many in Europe, it's the million-dollar question. Many people think that Germany will step up, that they have no choice, that the political will is such that you can't let the Eurozone fall apart. Here is uh, Alfredo Pastor, who teaches at the IESE Business School in Barcelona, when they asked him, will the Eurozone, will Germany step up to help Spain? Germany will exhaust every possible weapon in the arsenal before letting the euro break up. That is an awfully optimistic assessment. I do get the impression that Germans are are fed up with bailing out the other countries. Well, I mean, to an extent, many of them are. the, The rhetoric in Germany, I mean, look at what Angela Merkel is constantly saying. We don't want a breakup of the Eurozone. We'll do what it takes to keep the Eurozone together. Meanwhile, at home, domestically, she's having to make that case to an increasingly skeptical German public because they say, hey, these are our tax dollars going to bail out these countries. You know, how can we justify doing that anymore? The frustration that you're talking about in in Germany, uh, Angela Merkel having to appease Europe on the one hand, appease her own people on the other. How could that play out? Well, it could play out numerous ways. Um, One thing that we've heard a lot about is everybody in Germany always saying uh, maybe it's time Greece left the Eurozone and maybe we'd all be better off. Now I think that the level of frustration is such that that Germans are starting to wonder if if maybe they should be the ones to leave the Eurozone. And this was a little clip that I found from Hans-Olaf Henkel who is a professor at the University of Mannheim, was a huge supporter of the euro back when it started, and as you'll hear, is not so much a supporter of the euro now. We have had now 21 summits in the last two and a half years to save the euro, and I'm afraid we'll have another 21 summits in the next two years to save the euro. Aaron, it's that feeling that we just keep kicking the can down the road, we're not solving the fundamental issues. And actually, Henkel has proposed that Germany, Finland, Austria, and the Netherlands, the the big strong core, 
which is is shaky enough as it is. I mean, even today we heard that Germany might lose its AAA credit rating. Hinkle says, why don't the strong euro countries break away, form their own kind of northern euro, and see what happens? Maybe maybe both the north and the south would be better off if this economic split occurred. Finally, Clark, I just want to ask you, you have been to many of the countries in the eurozone. You did reports on the economic situation in those countries. What is the feeling of people living there? Are they fed up or do they understand ultimately beyond the frustration what it would mean to try and break the eurozone apart well the frustration is definitely there and it's it's there when you talk to germans it's there when you talk to greeks i mean they they understand that uh, in various ways being in the eurozone has been good for both of them but they also understand at some fundamental level i think that that germany and greece probably should never have been put in the same monetary union in the first place. And, and people ask, so, you know, isn't there a European Union? What, these, these countries, aren't they supposed to come together and solve this? And I, I, I have to remind them that the European Union is not, you know, a collection of states like the United States is a collection of states with a strong central bank. And I also have to remind them that it's not a political union either. And that's part of the problem as well. I like to joke, you know, the European Union is still 27 tribes and they all vaguely dislike each other and not, don't trust <laughs> each other. And that makes it hard to solve these big Europe-wide problems. The world's Clark Boyd. Thanks for talking with us. You're welcome, Aaron. The French government has just announced a raft of tax hikes, all of them on big companies and the rich. The proposals are proving popular. But business leaders and the wealthy say squeezing them would hurt everyone. The world's Jerry Haddon reports from Paris. French President Francois Hollande's plan to tax the rich has touched a nerve. I want to thank Leonardo for the big, great work they have done because I think they made something that was impossible to possible. And here I'm sitting very happy. At a recent press conference in Paris, Swedish soccer star Zlatan Ibrahimovic announced that a French team had signed him for about $17 million a year. Soccer salaries often cause controversy, but Ibrahimovic has created an instant scandal. The next morning, President Hollande had his deputy budget minister, Jérôme Caouzac, go on French radio to denounce the record payout as indecent. The French government's reaction won't just be indignation. If Hollande has his way, Ibrahimovic will get sacked with a 75% income tax on his new mega-salary. Same goes for anyone earning more than about $1.2 million a year in France. Hollande is trying to lower France's deficit in order to stave off contagion from other faltering Eurozone countries such as Spain. The loudest complaints about the 75% tax bracket come predictably from those who stand to pay it. At a small hotel in Paris, Sophie Canipel says she once liked the idea of inheriting this place from her parents. But with the top-tier tax, she says, she'll be ruined. Right now, as upper-middle-class people, my husband and I are paying around 45% in income taxes each year. When I inherit the hotel from my parents, we'll get bumped up into that 75% tax bracket because the value of the place will be counted as income. There'll be nothing left over for us. Without doubt, Madame Canipel and others like her stand to pay through the nose, but they're hardly getting a lot of sympathy from their working-class neighbors. In the city of Nancy in eastern France, a shop owner named Anne says that she supports the tax hike. That way, she says, there'd be fairer distribution of wealth between the ultra-rich and the middle class. 
But the vast majority of French non-millionaires aren't rushing to celebrate just yet, because many people doubt that the rich will really end up paying the tax increase. A barista named Sophie works at a corner cafe in the Paris suburb of Anières. I like the idea that the rich pay more, but I worry that they'll find a way to pass the buck. I'm sure that's going to happen. The middle class is going to take it on the chin. It always happens that way. And the middle class is shrinking. Another fear is that more French wealth will leave the country. The wealthiest Frenchmen routinely stash their money in far-flung tax havens. Now there's concern that businesses might simply pack up and go. Under Hollande's tax reform, French corporations have lost a handful of deductions, including a big one on overtime salaries. Businesses already complain that labor costs are too high in France. French carmaker Peugeot cited those costs this month as a reason for laying off 8,000 workers and closing a plant outside Paris. If Peugeot follows through, it would be the first car factory to close in France in 20 years. British Prime Minister David Cameron recently joked that he would roll out the red carpet for French companies in the form of tax breaks. Unions are up in arms, and Hollande himself has come out swinging. He needs to show that he can, in fact, tax big money and not have the little guy pay the price. Les leviers, uh, ils existent. Il y en a plusieurs. France's finance minister, Pierre Moscovici, went on French radio to say that Peugeot's plan was unacceptable. When asked what leverage the government has over private business, he hinted that government subsidies for the carmaker might be called into question. The outcome at Peugeot could weigh heavily on the credibility of President Hollande's plan to tax the wealthiest more without strangling the economy. France's unemployment is at 10 percent and has been rising. Hollande would like to win this battle before moving on to the next, trimming France's bloated public sector. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon, Paris. We're headed into the tropical forests of Central America for today's GeoQuiz. These forests cover the Yucatan Peninsula, some of it in Mexico, some in Guatemala. But back when the Maya built their civilization here, there were far fewer trees, city-states, and farms made up the landscape. In the northern part of Guatemala lies a Mayan city long since abandoned. Its name means place of bats in the Mayan language, and it is still swarming with bats, millions of them. Archaeologists have recently discovered an old temple here. It's called Diablo. This devil's temple sits on a high hill and is covered in dramatic carvings or masks, once painted red. It was intended to glow fiercely like a beacon at sunrise and sunset. Stephen Houston is an archaeologist with Brown University who's done a lot of work here and joins us now. Stephen, what's the answer? El Zotz. El Zotz. Uh, you've been there a bunch of times, and you write about its spectacular location. Tell us what's there and describe it for us. It's a large Maya city, uh, not too far from an even larger city, a metropolis uh, called Tikal, which many listeners have probably been to. Zotz is a, a city mostly of the classic Maya civilization, so it dates more or less to the first thousand years after the time of Christ. And on a high escarpment, a valley, uh, above most of the city is a temple, which we've been digging in since about 2009. And that's where we found these spectacular masks. Uh, the, the temple, as you said, was high on a hill, and it had uh, carved faces painted red, and it was supposed to glow at sunrise and sunset. Do, does that glow still happen? 
No, it doesn't, because what we're digging up is buried under quite a few meters of rubble fill. Uh, and even when it was still visible to the Maya, they seem not to have repainted very often. So the le- the faces and sculpted masks that we've seen actually are a little bit faded. Uh, the red paint, which would have been a, a kind of blood red color, quite vivid, is only preserved on some of the more sheltered areas. Now, El Zotz is named for the bats. Uh, and what, from what I understand, there are millions of them there. <laughs> What's been your experience with the bats? The bats are probably one of the greatest experiences naturally of my life, uh, visiting them at dusk. They, they live, uh, again, by the million in a partly collapsed sinkhole nearby. is a little like watching one of the great migrations, I suspect, on the Serengeti Plain. At about 7 o'clock in the evening, there's a, a increasing chirping sound, then it becomes almost like a low roar, and they shoot out by the million uh, on their nightly search for food. Is it uh, frightening? No, um, they don't bother me at all. Uh, it's a little disgusting to have to stand in the uh, heaps of their excrement under the cliff to watch them <laughs> leave. Oh, yeah. Nice. Um, El Zotz is in a pretty remote corner of northern Guatemala. What's the journey like to get there? It's uh, not that far as the crow flies from the local regional capital. But the road is unspeakably bad, and the minute we get any rain, uh, it becomes uh, uh, one of the most uh, miserable experiences imaginable with uh, winching and uh, stuck vehicles and pools of water that the mules have been through. So it's not all that uh, fun an experience getting in and out. You are excavating the ruins of this spectacular culture, the Mayans, What happened to them? Why is this now just dense jungle without people? It's an excellent question. The short answer is that the Maya are still very much with us by the million, but they don't tend to have lived in this area. They did depart. There are many, many explanations for this, as many as there are archaeologists. Partly it was probably a natural origin. There may have been way too many people living out there. And partly, too, it was of their own doing through conflict and being unable probably to resolve a lot of their uh, social problems. Could you just describe again briefly what the culture was like? Maya civilization of that time is a courtly culture. So even though it seems a, a very different kind of context, you can get a feeling for what it was like to live in that society by comparing it with that of the Aztecs or even with Versailles or the Tudor courts of England. You would have had kings. They would have been surrounded by courts, artists, buffoons, jesters, dwarves, princesses, you name it. And uh, they were literate people. Uh, So they've left for us fairly clear and tangible records of what they thought was important. And a lot of that had to do with dynastic intrigue, but also with the ritual obligations of kings, because they weren't just uh, secular rulers. They were also sacred beings. Stephen Houston is an archaeologist with uh, Brown University. He has been excavating an abandoned Mayan city in northern Guatemala. It's called El Zotz, and it's the answer to our geo quiz today. Stephen, thank you so much. My pleasure.
And online, you can see a video of the bats of Elzot swarming out of their cave, plus a slideshow from the archaeological dig there. That's at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from WGBH, producer of Market Warriors, from the people that brought you Antiques Roadshow. Four pickers scour flea markets nationwide, hoping to out-profit their competitors at auction. Market Warriors, Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. A simmering political issue on the streets of Iran is the rising cost of chicken, Demand went up because of the rising cost of red meat, and prices have at least doubled in the last year. International sanctions imposed on Iran are being blamed, but so is government mismanagement. The BBC's Siavash Ardalan says the government has been trying to keep chicken affordable. What the government has done is it's tried its best to offer chicken at competitive prices, at the government-subsidized price, which is almost half as, as the price you would get in the black market. So this has created long queues of expectant people before centers where they sell the chicken. Have there been um, riots because of this problem? Certainly the, the government seems to think that could be a possibility. There was one disturbance yesterday in one of the cities, small cities in Iran's eastern province. In terms of uh, security concerns, I think the government so far has handled it well. But yesterday would represent a breakdown in that effort. The problem is sanctions, right? It's harder for people to get the food needed to feed the chickens. Is that what's happening now? Yes, it's making it more difficult for the ships to arrive and unload. But at the same time, you have to also consider the mismanagement as a factor as well. If things were managed better, if there was less corruption, it would be easier to get around the difficulties associated with the sanctions. But and do because, people blame the United States for what's happening, or, or do they blame the government? People who generally are hostile to the United States and its policies and are more supportive of the regime usually point to outside factors, but many of the people usually among the middle class um, blame the government naturally. But also there's a you also have to differentiate between the regime and the government itself. Many people might be loyal to the regime, but nevertheless blame the government for mismanaging this particular issue. Chicken is a big part of the Iranian diet, is it not? Increasingly, yes, but it is a big part. Even before uh, red meat was difficult to buy, uh, chicken was a big part, and it's even a bigger part now, yes. Yeah, I, I was there for a few weeks, and it was all kebab and chicken. <laughs> yes, uh, Iranian diet is, is very meat-based. The situation has led to a lot of jokes about people being above or below the chicken line. It's the new poverty line. So it, it's kind of funny, and it's kind of not. Yes, Iranians have a good uh, um, predisposition to making humor out of every difficult situation. What you just referred to, the chicken line, is is one of those jokes. And the other one is the fact that uh, neither the Green Revolution nor uh, the all the different opposition elements could overthrow the government. But one day what could turn out to overthrow this regime could be the chicken. We, we would call this in America chicken gate. We would call it the chicken awakening. <laughs> <laughs> The BBC's Siavash Ardalan on what Iran's media are calling the chicken crisis. Finally, we end today with the story of a young Cuban pianist and his unusual journey to the U.S. Here's reporter Beto Arcos. When Alfredo Rodriguez enrolled in music school in Havana at the age of seven, he wanted to learn how to play the drums, but they told him he had to choose piano or violin. I chose piano 
uh, thinking that I was going to change to percussion at 10 years old. But, you know, at 10 years old, I was completely falling in love with the, with the sound of the piano, and, and I didn't change. When he was 14, his uncle gave him a CD of Keith Jarrett's legendary Cone concert. Rodriguez says that was it for him. I used to play just classical music at that time. And after that CD, I think that CD kind of changed my life because I, I found the improvisation. You know, I said to myself that that was what I wanted to do all my life, you know, since, since that moment. Rodriguez is the son of a popular Cuban TV entertainer and singer of the same name. He started playing in his father's band when he was 14. He went on to graduate from the renowned Amadeo Roldan Music Conservatory. In 2006, Rodriguez was offered a spot at the Montreux Jazz Festival in Switzerland. One night, the festival's director invited him to play at his house. That's where Rodriguez met Quincy Jones. And I remember I played um, a Cole Porter song, which is called I Love You. That was how I met Quincy, and Quincy was uh, very happy to, you know, I don't know, to, to listen to my music at that time. And so I just took that experience as, you know, like something positive in my life. I, I had the opportunity to play one song for Quincy Jones. And Quincy Jones remembers when he heard Rodriguez. He blew me away. We heard him that day. Herbie Hancock says, I'm not going anywhere near that. <laughs> After Montreux, Rodriguez went back to Cuba. A month later, he got a call from Quincy Jones Productions offering to produce an album. But to do that, he would have to move to the U.S. A few years later, Rodriguez made the difficult decision to go. He traveled first to Mexico, where his father was living, but when he tried to cross the border into the U.S., he was arrested by Mexican Border Patrol officers. I had to speak with them like three or four hours about my situation, about what I was coming to the United States. Literally told them the truth, you know, to meet Mr. Quincy Jones and to play my music. You know, that was something very positive in my life. And after four hours of speaking, they understood whatever I was trying to tell them. And they let me, you know, go to the to the border. So I took a cab and took me like 15 minutes and I crossed the border. So on his first week in the U.S., he wrote the piece Crossing the Border, which reflects all the stress of that experience. With his debut recording called Sounds of Space, produced by Quincy Jones, Alfredo Rodriguez is now on a constant worldwide tour, waiting for the next surprise. For the world, I'm Beto Arcos.
You can watch a video of Alfredo Rodriguez and Quincy Jones talking about their collaboration. It's at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Aaron Schachter. We're back tomorrow. is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported by the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by contributors to the PRI Program Fund, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI, Public Radio International.